Greetings and welcome to the Good Good Golf Podcast. Yes, you are in the right place and this is the podcast you thought you downloaded. I suspect you're anticipating the dulcet vocal tones of Rod Morey. However, we're giving the poor overworked man a well-deserved break from his hosting duties, at least for this one episode. In case you cannot tell, I'm Derek Duncan from the Feed the Ball podcast and the Associate Editor for Architecture at Golf Digest Magazine. This is a special edition of the Good Good Podcast as we resurrect one of the most popular features from the old I Seek Golf podcast, the Book Club Roundtable. And the book we're discussing today is arguably, at least in my opinion, the most seminal companion of worldwide golf architecture ever published the World Atlas of Golf. And those of you who listen to the old book club feature, as well as those of you who are now frequent and loyal listeners of the Good Good Podcast, will recognize one of our book readers and co-hosts today, the global golf raconteur, Mr. Adrian Logue, a golf flaneur who strolls the fairways of earth like Baudelaire in Paris, collecting inspired observations and doling out. In return, his sharpened wit and splendid photography from Australia to Europe and the UK to the US and back. Who better to discuss a book called The World Atlas of Golf than Adrian? Hello, Adrian. Thanks very much. Thanks, Derek. That's very flattering, that introduction. And might I say, you're the velvet-voiced Derek Duncan. Uh, it's not the dulcet tones of, of Rod Murray, but beautiful introduction. Thank you. I'll take, I'll take that as, as, a, as a second place uh, accolade. Um, our second co-host brings a much-needed level of integrity and intellectual heft to the proceedings. He's the author, scholar, golf historian, and a general man of letters and words. And you can read those letters and words in the wonderful book he published last year called Monarch of the Green, Young Tom Morris, available wherever books are sold. You can also listen to him discuss the book and the life of Young Tom Morris at length in episode 16 of the Talking Golf History podcast, hosted by Connor Lewis, right here on the TalkingGolf.com network. His name, of course, is Stephen Proctor, and we are delighted to welcome him and his insights into the book club. And so we say now, Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much, Derek and Adrian. I'm huge fans of both of you and the work you're doing, and it's just a thrill to be on. Well, we're ex- very excited to discuss this book. Uh, no one's more excited than me to get into this, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about uh, our relationship to the book, uh, and but let's just start off right there. Um, Adrian, we'll start with you. What? How did you come to know the World Atlas of Golf? Uh, when were you exposed to it? Uh, what is your relationship with this book? Well, this is probably one of the most influential golf books from my childhood. Um, I'm, I'm holding the copy here uh, that I've got. It's, it's the 1983 edition, which I think is a reprint of the original 1976 edition. And uh, this is this is a book I'd just go to again and again as a kid just to look at uh, the amazing illustrations that are in it, read some of the stories. It's one of those books you can kind of open anywhere and turn some pages over for a minute or two. And uh, there's a little there's a definite feeling of escapism to it. And I think that was the attraction for it in those pre-internet days is that those course illustrations and the stories about those courses created a real mystique, which to some extent I think we've lost these days um, with the internet and the available availability of golf course photography and, and just how small the world is these days. This book gave you an insight into far-off places, which I found fascinating. And for me, some of those far-off places were even you know, within Australia. Um, I could I could look at the section in this book on Royal Melbourne and, and dream about what it would be like to play there. Um, and 
uh, yeah, so in a, in a time before you could get access to these things, I think this book provided an aspirational outlet to get some sort of insight into um, some of the amazing places where people got to play golf around the world. It is interesting to think about how times have changed in our lifetimes when when we were younger, you would hear about Pine Valley or uh, some uh, private golf course, a Cypress Point, and you might you know, see a picture of it in a magazine, but you really didn't, didn't have any expectation that you'd ever be able to go play there or see yeah. much of it. There was a, these things existed behind the veil and there was a, an air of secrecy around them. And that doesn't, and you're right, Adrian, I agree with you. That does not exist anymore. And it, we've, we've lost that mystique of, of not knowing about a, a particular place. And this book, what, what this, it did for me as well, was it was the only portal into those places. You know, we, we read about Pine Valley being the greatest golf course in the world, arguably. And there it was. You open up the pages of the World Atlas of Golf, and there's the course map and the, the, the rendering of the holes and, and the stories about it. And, you know, 1,200 words about Pine Valley is more – you couldn't get that anyplace else. So, you know, I find the same thing that you do with this with this book. I, I – I've told this story before, but I, when I was a, a boy in elementary school, I'd go to the school library and try to check out books about golf. And this, I found this in, in, you know, I don't know, I was 10 years old or eight years old and I would check it out and recheck it out and check it out over and over again. It was really my mm-hmm. first portal into golf courses and travel and architecture and just, you know, flipping through the pages was something I, I did just like you. And so there's a real level of nostalgia <laughs> about this book, if you can't tell, but Stephen, yeah. you... You have come to this a little bit more recently. What? What? How did you come across the World Atlas of Golf? Completely by accident, as it happened. Uh, you know, I'm I'm new to the. To, first off, I didn't even start playing golf until I was 43 years old, 62 now. Uh, so I'm newer to golf than all of you. Uh, I started um, reading about golf architecture because I felt like I needed to understand more about how courses played in order to write the book about Tom, and so. I really got interested in it through reading, you know, books by George Thomas and Harry Colt and people like that about the strategy of it and so forth. And I found it very fascinating and started reading more. One day when I was uh, fishing around online, I noticed that this book, uh, the name of it suggested something different to me, but I bought it just to read and then got caught up in another project and hadn't read it until Rod contacted me. So I read it just in the past two or three weeks. I was awed by this book. You know, I, I, I was impressed on a number of different levels. One was the quality of the writing in it and the thinking behind the writing I thought was exceptional throughout. Uh, it interested me that the original edition was written by some of the great golf writers ever, Herbert Warren Wynn, Pat Ward Thomas, and you're one of the great champions of all time, Peter Thompson, among at least one other, I, I forget the last name. But, you know, I just thought the writing was magical. I thought uh, the presentation of the book was fantastic, and we can talk more about that later. Uh, I thought it was the first book I had read that I considered a worthy successor to the golf courses of the British Isles, that it was about the courses and how they were played, but it was about many deeper things than that. And, and so I was I thought it was wonderful. How do you think this book functions as an architectural resource? You said you picked it up because you wanted to familiarize yourself with architecture to some degree as you were writing your book. Did you, did you feel like the edition that you're reading, and we'll get into the different editions in a moment, did you feel like the edition that you were reading delivered on that desire? Oh, absolutely. It, you know, The thing I liked the most about the book was that 
it gave you so much about the course in the same way that Darwin's book does the history of the of the events that had taken place on that course the way that the course can play in different circumstances and different winds and all of these things which are the things you want to know about a place or feel that you know if you're trying to write about say a minor golf course that's in a story and you can't visit every golf course that's in every book you write all the time uh, especially if you live in the United States and you write about things that happen in England and Britain and uh, so I thought it might be helpful there when I bought it. But when I read it, it was just very it was just I was impressed by how thoughtful it was above all things. It was a very smart book about the, the evolution of the game, about how the courses have grown over the years and why things happened the way they did. So I, I just thought it was super smart and beautifully written in so many spots. One of the things that's uh, that occurs to me is when when we do the book club in the past or when when rod and uh adrian do it and the, the they and the guests read the book you're likely reading word for word the same book as as everybody mm-hmm. else this book has many editions that have come out over the years and and most of the early versions i think have slight alterations to them so the three of us may not have read the exact same book or had access to the same uh uh, essays uh, that we, that the other ones did. The the book was originally published in 1976, and it had been reprinted largely just uh, to republish it every few years after Adrian. You said you have a 1983 version. I have yep. the original 1976 version. I have I have a version from 2004, which I believe Stephen, you said you were reading as well. Yes, that's uh, the one I read. And in between 1976 and this 2004 version, most of the book remains largely the same. Uh, some of the essays in the front of the book uh, drop out, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, and then there's some uh, a few courses appear on the list and a few golf courses. Uh, I'm not sure what the process was, uh, how they you know, figured out which ones came and which ones went, but a few drop off. So it, it, it attempts to stay relevant throughout the ages. In 2008, the book was completely rebooted. Uh, they sh- they didn't keep essentially anything from the previous uh, editions that had existed since 1976. The editor, Mark Rowlandson, who also has, has been the editor for these books, at least he is in the 2004 the 2000, yeah. edition, um, was in charge of the, the reboot in 2008, and they rewrote every they rewrote every single course profile. They rewrote the entire front of the book. So it's not the same book at all. Um, but since neither of you uh, are looking at that issue, we'll only touch on the changes that were made tangentially. But I do think we, uh, I, I want to come back and, and talk about those because there was um, a real, a real sense of, of, of change and, and loss in my opinion. But um, the first thing that comes to my mind about these books is, is as you said, Stephen, the, the quality of the writing, which I think most of it is intact in all the the uh, editions that that uh, we're going to to read. Even more than the architectural insight or the you know whatever kind of knowledge you can glean, it's simply a, a joy to read. Um, it's been called the golden age of golf writing, the period from the maybe the nineteen fifties through the nineteen eighties, and some of the biggest names, greatest golf writers that ever lived contributed to this edition um pat ward thomas herbert warren wind alistair cook um adrian what was your what's your assessment of the writing that's part of the thrill isn't it of these books it it certainly is and those essays you mentioned at the start uh 
are really worth spending some time on. Um, it's not clear who wrote each one. It's not completely clear who wrote each one. Alistair Cook wrote one called a, The Fine Flower of Many Landscapes, which I think is a lovely overview of the evolution of golf courses. Yeah, and by um, the way, another thing that's lost in as in subsequent editions is just even the simple titles of these chapters and the, sub, oh, yeah. the subtitles of the golf courses, which they slowly disappear as the years go on. But the yeah, fine flower of many it's landscapes. Bizarre. It's almost the abridged version. This 2000 edition that I've got is almost like the abridged version of the 1976 edition. Um, it's quite bizarre what they chose to leave out, but anyway... Um, there's a. I was trying to work out which is the Herbert Warren Wind essay from the start, and I realised stupidly it's the longest one. Of course. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, but the thing I miss most for, uh, that they um, amazingly I can't believe they removed in the in the most recent edition is uh, uh, an essay called "Elements of Greatness: A Classic Course." Um, I don't know who the byline on it is, but it's the one where that's Pat Ward Thomas. That was Pat Ward Thomas. So yeah. they they select eighteen great holes and and com, like make a composite course of eighteen of the greatest holes around the world. But the thing that drew me again, time and again, to that article, this is a page I noticed the spine's a little bit worn out on, on this old edition of the book. At this page where it opens out to the sixth at Royal Melbourne. Um, which is and and I think it's really it's this uh, this little paragraph that's in here about the sixth at Royal Melbourne, which really inspired my passion for golf course architecture. I, I feel like I read that that little paragraph a number of times, stared at that diagram forever, and talked about it with my dad, who'd played there, um, and eventually got to play there myself. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't. I'm you know, personally offended that that section's been taken out of the new book. So, will you will um, you go but, through and uh, tell what they so the, so the so Pat Ward Thomas compiled basically an all world eighteen holds true to mm-hmm. hole number. Um, go ahead and tell us what yep. those holds are, because I want to see if they've changed since the seventy six edition. Okay, so I've got uh, the first is Royal St George's, um, the second at. Uh, um, Scioto, uh, the third at Durban Country Club, fourth at Bolter's Roll, fifth at Mid-Ocean, sixth at Royal Melbourne, uh, seventh at, I'm going to mispronounce this, Cayules. Right, which um, is which, which is, is a, now known as Teeth of the Dog. Oh, right, okay. That's that course. Okay, yeah, but well, it, that it just opened, which is interesting that that looking this list, because that couldn't have been more than a year or two old. Interesting. Well, I, I wonder how many paid... Um, entries there are in the latter edition of the book actually um where they introduced uh, a bunch of resort courses and things but anyway um the the eighth at pine valley uh ninth at muirfield tenth at muirfield village Mm. um (laughs) 11th at at the country club uh 12th at augusta national uh 13th at harbour town 14th at st andrews again i think just um, shows the quality of this book that it it chose the correct hole to pick from the old course to put into this list of eighteen holes. Yeah, un- um, unlike Murfield Village, I mean, if it was going to uh, make, absolutely. if any hole was going to make this list, it probably wouldn't be the tenth. But exactly, yeah, fifteenth um, at Oakmont, 
16th at Carnoustie, 17th at Cypress Point, which I think is a fascinating selection. And I I like that selection. I like that selection a lot. And the 18th at Pebble Beach, which is hard to argue with. Um, But, yeah, it's a a great little section. Is that one you liked as well, Derek? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, especially when when you're new to architecture and, and you come across these compilation of best holes in the world and it's the the greatest 18 holes i mean you it really makes you pay attention and of course they're accompanied by these lovely watercolors you know renditions of the holes um steven we've got to talk about the artwork yeah okay missed out on that article yeah we'll get to that you know that isn't in our edition at all you know and the one thing that did drive me batty about reading the book was they they could you, you couldn't tell who wrote what here you had these famous names uh, and you just there nothing was it was not clear who had written which essay and for a book that's so focused on architecture it also didn't list in the little chart course card or whatever that they have uh on every shame which is otherwise a very lovely chart well presented it would they they seem to have focused on the lowest score rather than who made the course which seemed to be kind of contrary to the point of the book um, that's a good point a really good point yeah i was looking for the you have to search through the actual body of the, each article to to work out who the architect was. Right, and some of them don't. Well, at least one I noticed didn't mention one at all. Right. And you're like, oh, well, I wonder who that was. But you know, so there were some glitches. But I would agree overall that it was very, very well presented. Stephen, what did one did any of the uh, the essays strike you as particularly excellent? Well, obviously, I have somewhat different ones. Yes, uh, the one, the the opening essays, uh, Links courses, Nature's Gift to Golf, I thought was a lovely essay. Uh, then I suspect there, that's Peter Thompson wrote that one. It felt, you know, I was trying to do Sherlock Holmes the whole time uh, and figure out who wrote what. I really liked one that was um, the imperishable genius of the master architects was a lovely essay too. There were a number of the, the front page, the front section essays. I thought were really terrific and individual profiles um, of, of, of courses I thought had some beautiful writing in them. Uh, that was the thing that kept bringing back the Darwin book to me. You know, his writing is obviously gorgeous beyond comparison. And so I wouldn't agree that the golden age of writing starts in 1950. I think it starts in 1907 precisely when Bernard Darwin <laughs> begins writing. But in any case, uh, I, I really, I, I felt it was so evocative. It made you, I felt like it made me understand the soul of the course in the way so many books about golf courses do never never accomplish. And that was the thing that really drew me into the book and made me love reading it uh, the, whole, the whole, whole way through. And it just opened up my eyes to a lot of parts of the world, too, that I wasn't aware of the quality of their golf courses uh, or and so forth and so on. So there was just a lot about it that I really adored. And the writing – in the front page essays, I think was the strongest throughout the book, and those two I liked in particular. Yeah, this this roster of writers has a real talent, a rare talent, and and maybe an extinct talent for doing just what you said, Stephen, is is drawing and illustrating the soul of the golf course. One thing that the 2008 edition does better than this, it's the only thing it does better, is it does list in each course profile the lineage of of architects who worked on the golf course who designed it who renovated it and when so they did add that um and for those of you playing the least they could do it's the least they could do it's the one thing uh for those of you playing at home along at home um 
there's the and I think this shows up in most of the editions, but yeah, there's the first essay by Alistair Cook, The Fine Flower of Mini Landscapes. Yeah, I would the, love to read that. I might go buy the 1976 edition when we get off of this. And you, you should. Yeah, yeah you really can good. get them on eBay. Um, the whole next section in many pages was written by Donald Steele. And in the original version, Adrian, I don't know if, if you have this, but it, it starts off with uh, golf's grand design, and then it gets yep. into the evolution of clubs and balls. And it talks about uh, yep. links courses, and then it goes to the birth of golf architecture. It just it walks very slowly very purposefully down this this historical road about how golf developed and how it spread through the world and the advancements in architecture that was all written by donald Steele. um it's it's no coincidence i think that the modern book that most evokes the feeling of this book is keith cutton's the evolution of golf course design uh, i think which is also you know beautiful hardcover edition and um I think both of you guys have probably got a copy. Yes, I think that's a great book. I I completely agree. Uh, yeah. That was one that I felt, you know, I've been, re- like I say, reading what I consider to be, the, or what people seem to consider to be the seminal works about golf architecture. That one was that just connected a lot of threads together the way he did that book. Uh, yeah. And I thought if you were a person trying to go into golf architecture, that would be a wonderful place to start because it really – connected all the dots for you in so many ways just a terrific job by him it comes at it from the architect's perspective it's an architect centric book whereas this is a golf course centric book yes Um, but both tell the same story in a a lot of ways there are Um, actually a lot of similarities between keith's book and the the 2008 reboot of of world atlas of golf and keith does what this book attempts to do much much better than the than the world atlas of golf revision it, the world the latest edition gets into kind of breaks down architecture slugs on each architect and uh it, it's it's very um it, it's it's like there's there's the pacing of the older editions of world atlas of golf are, are so wonderful there, there's there's richness and and the writers develop the story and the the the, the new version which I suspect is the version that many people who are listening have. It, it just feels like it's concise, it's to the point, it's practical, but it doesn't have the charm. And, and there, there's no attempt to, you know, paint a beautiful portrait or, or, or develop the story. It just seems like a sprint through the ages and everything's very perfunctory. Um, so if that's what interests you, go buy Keith Cutton's book because it does a much better job of, of delivering the on the architectural side of it. You know, Derek, it feels to me like, and, you know, as you say, I'm, I'm newer to the book than you are, but it feels to me like they had a wonderful gem and have allowed it to deteriorate steadily over time, edition by edition, uh, by, you know, trampling over the voice of the writers that made the book great in the first place. I think I think that's a very astute observation. It, it, it begs the question, why? You know, there it, was it just an, uh, a restless impulse, you know, this an, a desire to, you know, assume that you're making improvements? Um, maybe this is a good time to get into uh, w- what distinguishes each of the editions and w- and it's what made the list and what didn't, because this really is uh, intended to be a compendium of the great golf courses of the world, the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the masterpieces, if you will. And those change over time. In the, Stephen, I think in the edition that you have and a later edition that you have as as well, Adrian, there are some, some curious 
curiosities that that made it into those middle editions that didn't exist in in the er, early couple uh, editions, um, including some European courses like. The Belfry. The Belfry, the K, K Club. Club. Yeah. Yes, I was stunned to see those in there. I Le Golf like, National. Yeah. yeah. And Valderrama. also. Yeah, no, there were just a lot of courses that I thought in there. I thought, wow, you know, I don't see where that quite belongs in the category of these these other courses. And, um, you know, the, all the ones you named were very high up on my list. I kind of, you know, I do not hear an awful, and like I said, I'm newer to this than you guys, but I. Firestone sort of surprised me that that, that was considered one of the greats in the world. I mean, it's, it seems like a I good can kind of see that. I mean, it's a don't get me wrong, it's it, it looks awful, but it's uh, it's place in golf history is pretty significant. I, I get I buy that argument, but like for instance, yeah. the United States Pasa Tiempo is a vastly superior golf course to Firestone, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, and that's Very not in this book, at least not the one I have. Uh, so there were just, you know, there were some odd ones. But, um, you know, in the main, I thought the selections were, were very, very on point, um, at least as far as my knowledge of great golf courses goes, which is which is limited to a certain degree. Adrian, what do you think of the yeah. uh, how the so many of these golf courses, not all of them, of course, but so many, the story of the golf course is, is wrapped up in tournament history and famous mm-hmm. events that happened there. Did that, is that, is that important when you're talking about golf courses in a book like the world Atlas of golf? Uh, I think it is. Um, the, those are some of the more memorable pieces for me, like the, the story of the country club at Brookline is, you know, for me, because of this book, is forever mixed in with the story of Francis Wemet. And, uh, and in fact, every, every major tournament that's been hosted there has had some significant thing happen on the 17th green, I think, isn't it? Um, and, uh, we look forward to seeing what will happen there with the U S open coming up there. So, you know, in next year, is it, I think, but, um, courses like that where the story is tied into these tremendous moments in, major championship history uh i think are fittingly portrayed in that manner as a stage for these events to take place on um it adds to that uh sense of grandeur to of that the book has the older edition in particular where it's it's this place that you'll never get to play <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, but the greats have played there and the greats have done great things there you know, I would add to that, Adrian, I agree with every word you said, and I would add that one way of judging a golf course, to my mind, is what kind of champion does it produce? And yeah. if you have a course that's been around for hundreds of years uh, or decades or whatever, you know, the list of champions is pretty revealing as to the type of golf course it is. So I found that pretty important in terms of assessing uh, some of the courses I'd never heard of. You know, uh, or, or I shouldn't say never heard of, but, you know, hadn't seen much of, didn't know as much about, learned a lot about by reading this book. Um, learning with the champion there was was interesting in terms of assessing it. Yeah, there's plenty of courses that very few people have heard of in this book, and there's no reason why they should have either. Like, there's yeah. some uh, undoubtedly odd choices of golf courses in this book. Um, I think when you get into the Spain section. Right. Spain, Spain's way overrepresented in here, <laughs> but, um, but I'm not really familiar with any of those courses. But 
they might have hosted a Spanish Open or something, um, or, or a World Cup or something. But uh, the, yeah, I, I, I've looked on Google Maps for a lot of those courses, and they look pretty mediocre, like resort courses. Some of them. So there, there's some odd choices in here that you shouldn't be ashamed for not knowing about. Does Royal Sydney deserve to make the cut? It, it's in there. That's a tough one. Look, I looked at the. I spent a bit of time looking at the illustration for that one. And it's definitely there from a representation point of view. Like, it's obvious in the first edition of this book that they just thought, well, we need to get a course from Sydney and a course from Melbourne and a course and one other. And so they picked Royal Melbourne, Royal Sydney and Royal Adelaide. And obviously they should have gone with New South Wales for the course from Sydney. Um, and they added in the later edition, in the, well, it's in the, the Gazetta at the back that they have... Um, the Australian and New South Wales and Kingston Heath as well. Um, are those, but Royal Adelaide, Royal Sydney, Royal Melbourne, there's, there's an odd one out there. And, uh, but this edition of Royal Sydney that's in this book wasn't, isn't the worst edition of Royal Sydney. Like it's before around 2000 Royal Sydney was redone by Ross Watson. And to his credit, he got rid of a lot of the ridiculous bunkers that you can see in the layout of of this, like this version of Royal Sydney, uh, but he didn't produce a golf course that's true to that landscape. But we know now, of course, um, Gil Hance is going to redesign Royal Sydney, and uh, we can't wait to see what he does with it because it's an amazing piece of land. Yeah, sticking with Australia, it's also interesting to see in the earlier edition versus uh, the later editions. For those of us who aren't familiar with Royal Melbourne, the the difference in the composite course the, the championship course the holes are completely renumbered in in both uh versions and i don't even know what what which is the, if it's the, oh, if they're still that. with the so, latter version or what well the version in the 1983 book is the one is the the composite course that tournament watchers in australia would be familiar with from the 80s um and to me that's the true composite course with the exception of the par 3 16th there's the 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 hole that they played uh, in that part of the sequence for the President's Cup is a better hole than the hole they used to play in the 80s uh, as the 16th. But other than that, that sequence of holes that you see in both these books, I think it's the same. It starts on basically on the on the first west and um, goes around from there. Uh, so the key being the fourth west ends up being the 14th on the composite course. Um I think that provides great balance to the course where you've got sixth west on the front nine and 14th west or fourth west on the back nine. Um, there's two sort of great uh, par four and a half in the, in the case of the 14th and uh, one of the world's greatest par fours in the sixth. So um, that version of the composite course, which is a little bit different to the president's cup one, I think is the best version of the composite. Stephen, one of the things that I thought is so interesting, and again, I, I I know you don't have the older versions, but it's printed in the and a, even the eighty three version would have been different. I think they're talking about some courses like Shinnecock and talking about how it hadn't held a, a major in in so many years, and you know because this this predates the the eighty six U S Open at Shinnecock, or it, it's it's interesting to read these profiles and thinking about all the things that haven't happened yet at the time of the writing 
um, they spend a lot of time at Murfield talking about like the older tournaments, and of course, some of the other great uh, event open events hadn't been held yet. Um, they they talk a little bit about Hoy Lake, which would have a completely has a completely different representation in later versions after Tiger wins there. So it's really interesting to see um, just what uh, the view of a golf course that that hadn't really. Um, taken center stage yet and you you would i think you'd find that interesting as somebody who has written about tournament golf and, and players competing at, at the highest level tournaments as you said before really do have a major effect on a reputation of a club not just as who wins there but on how they're perceived i i there's no question about that and i i you know that was clear in a lot of these profiles and i think it would be interesting to see you know how they would write about Hoy Lake after Tiger or whatever. So I, I think that's a wonderful point, and I uh, that was one of the things I enjoyed most about the book was learning about the history on the golf course itself and particular holes and the you know trauma and tragedy that had unfolded there or whatever. Go ahead, Adrian. Were you going to? Oh, just on Hoy Lake, how, yeah. how much better is the the routing that they use for the Open, um, where you've got that uh, the what is the seventeenth and eighteenth in the diagrams here was played as the first and the second for the open when, whenever they, the open returns it, that's how they play it. And it results in the 16th being the finishing hole for the open, which is a tremendous hole really. And I, I think that's always the hole, even when Bobby Jones won there, I think that was the hole that they played as the finishing hole with the, it's got the internal out bounds on the, on the right. Right. Uh, I don't and, know. I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, it's just a it's a much better routing. I don't know why the members don't play it that way, but it's um I had the chance to play there this July and it is such a difficult golf course. It might be I it's definitely ranks among the harder courses that I've played on. And some of that was because the weather was a little bit unfavorable, but it's just a tester and you're is it the I, I, toughest I, course in the world? As like apparently Oakmont is, according to this. So <laughs> I've never played. I've, I've always loved that title, by the way. Yeah. That title that of that chapter on Oakmont. Ti- I mean, I've played a number so of the uh, open courses. I played Carnoustie, St Andrews, Hoylake, Royal St George's, uh, and I'd play and play Presswick. But I, I thought among those, I found that Hoylake tested me the most, and I was not really passing. None was, of us, very few of us do, Steve. <laughs> wonderful venue. The, these are great source of history as well. These these course profiles. Just speak, sticking with Hoylake, they have a little, and it's, I think it might be in yours still, Adrian. The little diagram about the 16th hole, about uh, Roberta De Vincenzo, how mm-hmm. uh, he dr- he drove his ball right up against that little wall with that out of bounds area, and there was some question whether he could get his his wooden club get the ball up quick enough to get over that wall. Yeah, and he did. Yeah, and uh, and and I. I I believe that's the hole where Bobby Jones hit that famous um, bunker shot um, to to win his final match uh, in that particular Open Championship. I think, but anyway, the uh, yeah they do a much better job in the older edition, or at least they've left in or they 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 got rid of some of the the great diagrams in the old edition, um, like the Trevino Jacklin. Uh, uh, at Muirfield, duel, yeah, at Muirfield, and the the way the seventeenth was played. There's a tremendous diagram on that in the old edition, but it's been lost from the two thousand edition. So I don't know why they did that. Every every course review is consistently one page less and seemingly removed 
some of the best stuff. It's yeah, more they, or less an abridged version. Recent events for the for the older events, which in many cases are are much more interesting. And yeah. It, but on this point, in the seventy six edition, they talk about Turnberry and what an amazing golf course it is, and yet no open had ever been played there yet. You know, and it was one year before the Nicholas Watson famous uh, Open Championship. So there's a little bit of a of a prescience as well. It's interesting. Yeah, these guys are Is smart. That the first, open at Turnbury. Are we okay? okay? Let's talk about the artwork because that I think is really what what separates this book from any other type of architectural manual or or anything written about golf course design. Is it's one thing to to do simple schematics of holes and show lines of play and where bunkers are positioned. It's another thing to produce these amazing, there's no other word for it, these amazing, I guess, I'm assuming watercolor pictures. Uh, there's so much to unpack there. Steven, what did you think of, what do you make of the, the artwork in this? My addition, I, I thought the artwork was wonderful. And I thought more than that, you know, I worked as a newspaper editor for all, all of my 35 years. And one of the big challenges in producing any kind of book or paper or whatever is making the most of every opportunity to get your reader interested in what you're talking about. And one of the things they did so beautifully in this book was that the graphics of, uh, the, I guess, their watercolor of the whole course diagram is what I have in each of mine. Mm -hmm. And they're beautifully done and make it easy to follow the conversation as you look at the whole and see what what they're what they're talking about as as they're writing. That I thought was beautiful. The captions were really very um, high level. I thought so often you see a picture and then it will say the 16th hole at Hoy Lake, which you obviously can see by looking. You know they always added in uh, nuances or facts or different things uh, that made them have greater dimension and give you more. More information than the essay itself, which is another great accomplishment, and also more reason to keep reading. And so I just was deeply impressed as a person who spent his life copy editing uh, with, with the copy editing of this book, accepting the few curiosities that I mentioned, that they don't tell you who wrote what, they don't tell you the name of the architect of the course most of the time on their graphic charts, so forth and so on. So it was curious to me that they made those kinds of errors uh, I mean, omissions, I guess I should say, when the rest of it is so amazingly well done. You know, any one of these captions just adds dimensions of information to the story uh, instead of just stating the obvious, which is which is one of the principal failings of a lot of books. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's it's a picture book and it adds to that appeal that you can you can pick it up from a coffee table or off the bookshelf, open it anywhere and just be drawn in um and it's the pictures that do that because you kind of flick and flick and flick until you find something that looks interesting and then you read in you read into it or you, you catch an interesting headline it's, it's a beautifully structured book in that way that either one of these pictures is going to draw you in or one of the headlines is going to draw you in and uh then you find yourself reading and then you've spent you've spent hours uh just going through it but the amazing thing about the artwork I think the thing that gives it its distinctive look is this sort of isometric angle that the the pieces are done at. It's sort of like a uh, it's sort of like a drone shot. Um, you're kind of at 45 degrees to the golf course, um, hovering above, and 
the, the first thing that you'd really notice about each course is the distinct colour schemes. Um, it, it's an amazing, uh, amazing effort that they've sort of captured the colour palette of these courses. And so that sort of draws you in initially um, because it has a, an amazing mystique to it, that just the look of the, the textures and the colours. And then you get into the routing and, and you're sort of eyeballing where the holes go and, uh, and and the amazing sort of patterns that they follow across the landscape. And then uh, as you get deeper into it, uh, you, you go through and you're actually looking at individual holes and sort of trying to pick apart the strategy of individual holes. So I think that's what makes these diagrams so amazing is that they convey – they communicate all of those things incredibly clearly. It's got this interesting perspective, amazing colour scheme. You can see the the routing and then you can see the strategy of the holes in a way that you couldn't achieve with a photo. Um, and I think it's one of those things that makes it very attractive to, well, young people in particular. And it was very influential on me is just being able to look at a picture book that laid out the, these golf courses so beautifully. Yeah, there's a, a couple things on that. I, these routing paintings, I guess you call them, are consistent throughout every edition up until 2008, and I'll come back to that. So so what you're looking at, um, no matter what edition you have before 2008, it's the same uh, as existed in the, the very first edition, with the exception of the courses that were added later. But there's something very 70s, maybe, maybe even earlier – about these pictures looking at them it reminds me of going to like natural history museums when i was a kid how dioramas dioramas exactly and there's something there's a a, a, something beautiful in how kind of crude and just purely representational they are there's an there's an art that i think was maybe unique to a certain period in time captured in museums and captured in the pages of this book that uh, nowadays, they would be rendered completely differently, uh, and they were beginning in 2008. But uh, in this book, it, 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 you know, being nostalgic, it kind of takes me back to to being a kid and just seeing like something that you might see in a museum. But Adrian, you brought up a couple, two really amazing points that I want to touch on. The first one is is the color, and these books absolutely just through the color palette capture what the golf course is about and. You can flip to a course like Olympic Club, obviously a very tight tree-lined golf course. And I also think about like the artist just hunched over this and having to hand paint every single one of those trees. And then you can flip it to uh, Royal Dornick. And you get a sense of all of all of the the beautiful the tawny gold yeah. yellow colors that that course is famous for, and then you can flip to to Pine Valley and you get a sense of of the sandscape that that golf course was built on so the 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 artistry in this is capturing something exceedingly fundamental about the character of these courses, and that's why there it's a form of storytelling that it adds to the text. You can, like Stephen was saying, you can just kind of pop back and forth and read the caption and and, and look at the picture and then read, and it it all works so well together. And then the other thing you said, Adrian, which I thought was spot on, and I have it in my notes too, is the angle that these routing maps are depicted at. There is a very precise but hard-to-define angle uh, of the vantage point that you're looking down on these golf courses and it's consistent throughout the book and it and it works really well as a way to 
explain the nature and the topography and the layout of these golf courses. In, I think in, the, the term is isometric, iso- where the far away things. I'm not smart enough to actually, know what that means. <laughs> well, it, video games use it quite a lot, where the far away things aren't smaller, like they're not drawn with perspective. It's uh, it's it's all the same size, but it's done from a, like a forty five degree angle that makes it look like you're, you're hovering over a, at a certain angle. But the perspective is lacking, so that's what spreads it all out and keeps the clarity. I think it's that it's a, it's a great choice for this type of communication. Trying to that, that clarity that it conveys is is owing to that fact. I think if the far away parts of the course were smaller, you wouldn't understand what you're seeing as well, which is what makes it better than a photograph. I think that's a brilliant point. Brilliant point. You know. I would say that I have had a hard time as a person learning architecture, understanding the idea of the, the sort of the nature of routing itself and why it's so critically important. You understand that from reading and you understand it intellectually, but seeing these maps just made it made you understand the way that these guys are such geniuses at finding pathways through an oddly shaped parcel most of the time uh, and coming up with these great you know, assemblages of holes. So I, I thought the maps really made were the first thing I'd ever seen that made me really understand how routing works in a visual way. They even take that to a further sort of more illustrative um, uh, way or there's a more illustrative device they use in one of the early essays where they show, you know, the old course used to just be one long fairway basically that went out to the Eden Estuary and back. And uh, when you think about it, the beauty of the old course routing is 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 so fundamental. Like if you're just some bloke with some sticks and a ball and you're thinking, I'm going to go have a hit out on this paddock here. If you're, if you're at that setting, you, you just look out to the Eden Estuary and you go, well, I'm just going to go out to there and back. <laughs> and it's just the most natural way to route it in the, that you could possibly imagine. And you think to yourself, well, I'll, I'll go down this right-hand boundary fence and then I'll come back by the right-hand boundary fence and there you go, there's my game of golf. Um, and uh, I think it's wonderful to to think about that and you can only kind of get a sense of that by looking at this course map of the old course. But then, yeah, there's a simplified uh, diagram they have at the start somewhere where they show how you know Muirfield is more or less routed with the, the front nine around the course and then the the back nines in the middle of the course and they contrast that with Port Marnock where the two nines are sort of bunched together. Yeah, yeah they were these guys were way ahead of the game. Uh, these writers were way ahead of the game in explaining this stuff. I I don't know if if this is accurate, but there's a tendency to think that we've you know, in the last 20, 25 years, we've kind of rediscovered all of this, these great ideas and this, these ways of explaining golf that did disappeared after 1935. And this is, this was written in 19 in the, right in the middle of the 1970s. And these guys were saying the exact same thing about golf design and breaking it down. All the things that we say now, their, their complaints, their, their issues with what was happening in the game was the issues that we have right now. The Herbert Warren Wind essay, uh, he laments two things about modern golf, pace of play, and he talks about five-and-a-half-hour rounds. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
and he and talks about yeah and and the distances the pros are, are hitting the ball and they and over and over alistair cook talks about um housing development courses and there's the the mistaken drive for seven thousand yard golf courses and i mean these guys were even though it was the, what we consider you know a fallow period for architecture there were some people who were still had still studied the old ways and and knew what they were talking about and understood golf history and had their finger on the pulse of of what was not right in the game and they knew better than anybody else how to explain what was right beautifully said yeah one of the things that interested me about the book and was kind of sad and profound in a certain way was just hearing the club descriptions that a person would be hitting from this spot or that pot. You know, there was a, somewhere toward the end of the book, there was a hole being described that was like 448 yards. And somebody was saying, the writer was saying that the player would need to hit a three iron in. And, you know, and you're thinking, well, no, not anymore. And it would just, it would really brought to the fore the way that architecture has been eclipsed by technology, because this is not that long ago. 2004 is my edition, uh, and I'm sure they updated some of the club links and things in these essays. Uh, and it was just sad to realize that the courses don't play anything like the way they were designed. It really brought that home to me. Uh, obviously, that's been obvious for a while, but it, it just really reinforced it in a poignant way, I felt. Well, if they, if they redid the diagram for Augusta National the 11th tee would be off the top of the page. Um, that, that was one that really stuck out to me. And mm-hmm. uh, the first tee would be back over near the clubhouse and the fifth tee um, is, is in a completely different position as well. But, yeah, I mean, the whole – that diagram of Augusta National is a similar-looking golf course to the modern course, but <laughs> there's um, – yeah, there's extra forest, and it, it's, it's an interesting reference from that point of view as well, because obviously this is a snapshot in time of a lot of these golf courses, and uh, it's fascinating to see how few uh, trees there are on a lot of them. Uh, Merion, in particular, that diagram of Merion, yeah, uh, is just a beautiful meadow that the golf course is set in. And yeah, the, the first line is just yeah, it looks like a meadow. That's right. <laughs> that's right, and the mowing lines are. Uh, uh, remarkable, and you can see the strategy of the bunkers because of the mowing lines, but um, or which are, are very wide, I should say. Uh, and I know that's just been redone, but all the photos I've seen of it, the most striking thing I see in the photos is it's still extremely narrow looking and extremely heavily wooded as well, which is in great contrast to the magnificent course I can see in this book. And it, oh, another illustrative way to look at that is the oakmont uh depiction you know this was drawn in the mid-70s i'm assuming and you can see that the trees are all saplings or just you know maybe 10 years old and we know we know that throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s those trees grow to be quite large and then oakmont goes and, and clear basically clear cuts the whole property and but you can see the evolution of their treescape in this picture and how it got started and what their intentions are. Not that started, these are, yeah, these yep. aren't, I don't know how accurate these are, but it's, I think it's, we can assume that this is kind of what the golf course looked like in the mid seventies. One more yeah, point about the artwork. Yeah. So in just to continue my, <clears throat> just discussed with the latest version, the 2008 <laughs> version, they, they redid all of all the artwork as well. And it, it lost any kind of sense of the, the isometrics are gone. It, it, there's more of like an, an overhead, like a str- almost a straight down view of the golf holes. They still try to make it look painted, but it's 
but it's just it's flat and lifeless. And if if you would compare any two golf courses, look at Seminole or look at Royal Dornick side by side. I defy anybody to to choose the the new version over the old. It's just sick. I'm trying to work out who the artist is who created these views in the original edition. Have you been able to? I did a bit of internet sleuthing to try and work that out, but I couldn't. I couldn't get to the bottom of it. That goes right to the heart of the whole maddening thing, where they don't tell you who wrote what, and you can't say who created these great works of art that we're talking about. It's it's fascinating because the book's so well done in so many dimensions, but there's just some very obvious holes in terms of how it was put together that I just find so curious when all the rest is so well done. In the 2004 yeah. version, there on the there's. A number of names. After. It says illustrations. I googled the- every single one of those, and none of them, uh, like, and in a variety of ways as well. But none of those names really gave me a hit on this style of artwork. But I'm obviously it's one of those people, but or some combination Maybe of them. If anybody out there listening has any any idea of who these who these uh, the artists or artists were, uh, please yeah. let us know. Um, Harry Clow, Allard, goes by a single name, Allard. That's got Chris Forsey, <laughs> Brian Delph, Charles Picard, Peter Mortar, Tony Garrett, Arca, another single name artist, <laughs> Sean Deal, and Line and Line, whoever that is. That must be a company. Okay. Stephen, do you have any – let's get into a, a couple profiles or, or talk about different things that – about specific golf courses that maybe you're going to take with you, take away from this or something that you learned or a nice piece of writing. Does anything jump out uh, from, the, from these individual golf courses? Well, one thing that jumped out at me in reading it and was that I was just unaware of the number of really what would seemingly be first-class courses in parts of Europe that I don't think of as hotbeds of golf. Um, number of the Henry Colt courses there and things like that that just sounded so fabulous in reading this. Uh, so that, like Royal Antwerp, sounded very interesting to me, although it looked awfully treed. Uh, but, you know, just there were more courses in that part of the world than I was aware were first class, and that, that struck me. I particularly loved reading profiles of courses that I had played and just to sort of see how they sized up a course I have played. And, you know, luckily for me, I've played a number of, of pretty good ones, including Cypress Point and Pebble and places like that when I was living out in California. So I, I, I enjoyed those two things. And uh, I, I would say that the Cypress Point profile I thought was beautifully done. The one on the old course, of course, is magnificent. So there were, there were a lot of them. But I, I guess the great quality of courses in Europe that I was completely unaware of was one of my big educations in reading this. Adrian, any thoughts on the individual golf courses? Yeah, look, I agree. The old course is fittingly, it's the first course profile in the book, and it's also one of the most comprehensive. I think it's almost half a page or a full page less in the 2000 edition. Um, Interestingly, one of the things they lose is the profile on the 14th, which is um, uh, not a good choice. That's one of the greatest holes in the world, maybe the greatest hole in the world. Um, So interesting they chose to, to... get rid of that profile and there's a great overhead diagram of that it's not not like the mckenzie diagram of the 14th which of course is one of the greatest pieces of artwork in golf um but uh it's one of those ones that really illustrates uh the way certain people have played the course and it, it goes through and shows how sarah's and um, bobby lock and peter thompson played it um 
in key moments in the Open Championship. Uh, so I think that's a that's a great one. And uh, look, I'm drawn to Royal Melbourne. Not only did they lose some of the text from the Royal Melbourne uh, overview, fittingly as well, Royal Melbourne goes over many pages, um, but they lost some of the text. They also lost some of the beautiful photography from the 1983 edition. There's a there's a beautiful photo of the eighth, uh, which is the hole with the massive cavernous bunker on the left, um, and uh, the tee shot from the the fourth um, fourth west. Uh, so uh, some odd things there in the newer editions, but this this older one, if you can get it on eBay, has has some great course overviews. As I said before, as well, the the country club at Brookline was um, a key one for me and one that really drew me into the story of the course with Francis Wemet. And I wonder if that photo of uh, Wemet and Eddie Lowry would have been as famous if it wasn't for this book. Good point. It's hard to know where else that photograph might have existed or been circulated as widely as it was here. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Adrian. I keep going back to this thing that you said is is that it seems like with every edition of this book, they something else gets dropped off, something else gets dropped off, and and these old you mentioned the fourteenth at St Andrews. I mean, that is such an, an amazing like little schematic there to tell how people yeah. play it through time. And in in a, in a new version, you could add Tiger Woods, you know, into that show how he played it, or or Louis Oosthuizen or something. You know, there's there's so many more things that you could add to these books rather than <laughs> subtract or, or change it radically, you know, completely. And none of that, none of these things really exist to that degree in the current version. One of the most amazing journeys along that hole that anybody ever had, I think was Roger Davis in the Dunhill cup one year against uh, Spain. I can't remember the golfer, but um, they both went, on completely different journeys down the hole. And uh, Roger Davis ended up winning with a six versus a seven, I think. <laughs> um, but, uh, or maybe Roger hit a fantastic third shot or something and might have made par, but, or fourth shot. Um, so, yeah, and, and to me that tells the story of that hole. Um, and, and it tells the story of golf in a lot of ways and shows how architecture can elevate golf to something uh, much greater than just what you see at Firestone, for example, where you're just slogging the ball down the middle, um, not being asked many questions. The contrast between that and the 14th at the old course is quite remarkable. Uh, so in the, most of the versions that we're talking about, the golf courses from Europe and UK were written by – those write-ups were from Pat Ward-Thomas. Uh, Charles Price did all the North American reviews – Peter Thompson obviously handled Asia and Australia. Uh, Pat Ward Thomas did the several, actually a couple African courses made it, right? I think there was like mm -hmm. Royal Johannesburg and, and Durban. And then yep. uh, Charles Price handled the one or two South American courses. I don't know. But that's the breakdown. Of, if, you're, if anybody's interested in, in knowing who wrote those sections, those are the writers. I came away with this. And so Wind only wrote essays? Is that is Wind that... only. He only did the one essay. I see. Okay. It was my appreciation for Charles Price. His writing just went through the roof with this. I mean, I, I was familiar with his writing a little bit before, but really revisiting the North American capsules, and uh, I was really blown away by some of his his uh, 
quips and the way he can turn a phrase. And I just want to share a couple of them uh, with you guys. He said about Augusta National, there's a line in there that I'm going to steal and and use it. He he said, the golf course, quote, made many a mere ball hitter look and feel a fool. And I'd never heard that word ball hitter before as it applies to golf. And it, it says a lot about... It's great because it it it, it has relevance now. now isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, and it's and it's more pertinent now than than ever. And then he talks yeah. about the the what's great about Augusta. He says the greatest strength lies in its plot, its unique ability to supply each year another chapter of almost unendurable suspense. And when we think about Augusta and the Masters and what brings us back, and and for whatever criticisms we might have of, of the architecture and, and the golf course, we we still do watch. And, and I, I thought that was just a a lovely way to kind of put what the drama is and, and how how important that is to that golf course. It's it goes hand in hand. And then one more, I'll just I'll just do one more. Um, he, at, speaking of Oakmont, he says that Oakmont, the golfer, is not playing off grass, but off an altar cloth. <laughs> so <laughs> just another, another great way to put that. So we, we've talked a little bit about th- these are snapshots in time. And, and I, there are a couple things in some of these I didn't, and I'll confess, I didn't read every single prof- course profile. Uh, I, I skimmed some, I read some and, and I skipped some, but um, a couple interesting notes when he, the original version, when they talk about Shinnecock, we all know it was a Willie Dunn golf course, and then that golf course was left, and, and they acquired new land and built a new golf course. And the way we hear it now is that it was the in the late 20s, early 30s, it was the William William Flynn came and, and remodeled the golf course. Uh, Charles Price gives the credit to Dick Wilson. He says that Dick Wilson in 1931 went to Shinnecock and, and remodeled the course into what it is today. So uh, I'm not sure where he was getting that information, if there's any validity to that, but as of the mid-'70s, that was, I guess, the conventional wisdom. Um, two more real quick. They, they credit the uh, the creation of Seminole to Donald Ross, but also working hand-in-hand with somebody named T. Claiborne Watson. And they talk about Watson's involvement. And Watson was the superintendent for many, many years at Seminole after it opened for like 30 years. But he gets, uh, he gets instead of uh, Ross working with um, Hatch and McGovern, who are his his longtime foreman and who oversaw construction, um, T. Claiborne Watson gets credit. And then the last thing I'll share is I was I thought this was amusing going back to Oakmont and talking about how fast the greens are. They uh, he he says the the greens were rolled with a half ton barrels and then they were cut to one sixteenth of an inch, but for six feet around the the cup wherever the cut was cut, they mowed it at one thirty second of an inch. So at some point in Oakmont's wow. history, they had two different heights of green cut within on a green. green. Greens within a green. Wow. So okay. those are that this book is probably is, running at eight in the stip meter, but probably you know. Uh, unbelievably fast for those times for sure, for sure. i don't even know what are what are greens cut at now what would be in, in is 132nd what is is that is that still fast i don't even know i don't know yeah yeah that sounds it sounds impressive but there are just so many of these great little nuggets in here and and, and sadly those things uh, continue to diminish as you get into subsequent editions and then by the time you get to the, the 2008 version it's literally just 
the the reviews are just hole by hole synopses of the golf course and they have some interesting diagrams and actually the intros to each section intro into europe and intro into north america are the most that's where the most the good information is but the course reviews themselves are are very anodyne and um they lack any of the spirit or sense of history that makes these older editions uh so worthwhile to read is that a um a symptom of of the times do you think derek it's um the relevancy of this book is is gone really the it's a artifact of the past i think for people like us who enjoy it but that edition doesn't surprise me really in the internet age that it, it was abridged and and more of a um more more like the gazetta section at the back of these old editions where it's just perfunctory listing of courses Right. I mean, that, and that makes sense if you look at it that way. Yeah. In the, in our attention deficit uh, era, maybe that's why, maybe, maybe they looked at the editors and whoever wrote, you know, it's, I'm not sure exactly who wrote them. Um, Mark Rowlandson was the editor and there was a, a panel of, of many people, I'll read them really quick, who contributed to the book and, and maybe had a lot to do with which courses made it into the new edition, which ones were dropped off. But it included Tom Doak, Mike Clayton, Rand Morissette, Daniel Wexler, Ian Carter, Richard Goodale, and Martin Hotry, Eric Franzen, Ulrich Mayring, Noel Freeman, and Ben Cohen Dewar. So there's no shortage of, of, uh, of golf intellect there. Some, some real geniuses on that panel, but for whatever reason, they tend to focus and maybe they look back somehow collectively and thought, these older versions are too verbose. They spend too much time talking about things that don't pertain directly to the architecture. And they viewed it as a corrective. And we're going to talk about the architecture. We're going to talk about the holes and some of the strategies. And that's going to be the new focus of the book. Um, But it it could have to do with just how times have, have changed. I just have a hard time thinking that anybody could read the writing of Charles Price and think that we're going to, Needed redoing. Scrap that, and and I can do better. Yeah. You know, I think all of golf. My view of it, Derek, is that all of golf writing has been dumbed down uh, in the last decade. At that, for sure. I mean, not all of it. There are still some incredible writers. Bamberger. I like Alan Shipnuck a lot. There are a lot of them, but I do think the day to day stuff that you read on websites and stuff is just not as smart as the what you see in this book. And it sounds like they made it into a travel book instead of a, a really wonderful book that they had. I wonder if that's what. Why do you think that is? Is that a top-down issue coming from editors? The, the need to streamline, the lack of space, or is it a, a talent issue? Well, I would say it's probably primarily the introduction of the internet has really destroyed a lot of of what used to be great journalism by making people focus on what clicks as opposed to what has lasting value. And I think that's, you know, infected golf writing just as it has newspapers across certainly the United States and probably the world. It's a shame because I, yeah, in my experience, it's very hard, even if, even if you are a very talented writer, not that I am, I'm talking about other people, but those who are, it's very hard to find a venue where you can, you know, other than your own blog, it's very hard to find a venue where you you're given enough space and time to develop ideas that will reach a wide audience. It's it doesn't seem like quality, imaginative storytelling is valued or supported 
and I, I know there are places like McKellar Magazine uh, that that do that, and that's where you can find that. But uh, just in in the mainstream media, like it'd be very hard to to get a book like this published today. You you would have to self publish it and have no expectations of ever making any of your money back. Well, exactly like Keith Cutton with uh, Evolution of Golf Course Design. So there you go. <laughs> self published and you know did it for the love of it, really. Well, you know, I I do think that um, part of uh, what's happened in the modern age is just that a lot of what I think of as the most prominent writers in golf are people that did not ultimately get the golf career that they wanted and started writing instead. Whereas a person like Herbert Warren Wind or Pat Ward Thomas or Bernard Darwin or any of the other great ones um, were really super highly educated men who viewed golf as an amateur sport that they loved and not uh, they weren't trying to become a professional golfer. And a lot of the people that write now seem to me to be in the category of people who did not make it as a golfer and wrote about golf instead. And, and interestingly, in this 2008 edition, some of these people are tremendously talented writers. Mike Clayton writes as well as anybody about golf. And I, I think he's contributed uh, uh, some pieces to this. I don't know if he did any full course profiles. I had a brief chat with him yesterday about it, and I can't really repeat most of what he said. But uh, <laughs> it was um, he, he wrote he was brought on to do some of the Australian section, but um, I, I think there were some constraints on the project. He, he said, which you know he couldn't. I don't think he had a say in what courses were going to be listed, um, and he felt some of the choices were pretty odd. And uh, uh, overall, he's is yeah, he, he wasn't very flattering of that of that edition of the book, right? I love Clayton, by the way. I think he's one of the smartest people that I've been introduced to since I took to Twitter last year when the book came out. So I would agree with uh, with what you said there, Derek. Well, Stephen, if you didn't fall in love with the title of this book, maybe you thought it was a little misleading. What if what would you change about it? Is there anything about this book that, that you think could be improved on going forward? If, if the three of us were going to get together and redo the World Atlas of Golf, what would it look like to you? Well, the first thing is I felt like it needed a title that captured some of the romance of the writing of the book. Uh, the World Atlas of Golf just, you know, Atlas obviously is a, is, is a group of maps uh, and charts or whatever is mostly what you think of when you think of Atlas. So I didn't, I didn't, the name just didn't capture what I thought the book represented. You know, even if we're simply the golf courses of the world, you get an idea that you're getting something different than a compendium. And, you know, I didn't think the name in any way reflected the depth often the poetic, poetic writing of the book, and I just felt like it needed something that connoted something different than what the current name, uh, current name does. I, uh, I think it, you know, if I were redoing the book based on everything I've heard here, I would go back immediately and include all the pieces of great writing that they had by the great writers that they had, and obviously reflect differently on the choices and probably try to recruit one of the better modern-day writers, like a Bamberger or somebody, to do something equally soulful and poetic about courses that would are must-ads at this point because of their their impact on the world of golf or their greatness as golf courses. So I, that would be the approach I would look for. And the thing that, that misled me about the title was I just felt it was going to be more like um, probably what it is in 2008 than uh, – than the really magical book I discovered when I opened it up. Mm-hmm. A- Adrian, what found, would you do? Well, I've always found the title kind of appropriate because the old edition, first of all, has a 
a great illustration on the cover. It's worth saying, um, which is it's a bit of I guess it's a bit of a cliche these days to do a golf ball with like a, a painted as a globe of yeah. the world. Um, but it's got one of the course illustrations over the top of it, like a painted like a continent. It's the um, looks like Pebble Beach. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a great illustration, I think, which sets the tone for that title. Um, and the explanation given for the title is that it was part of a series of books um, inspired by um, the World Atlas of Wine, <laughs> which um, – uh, and it doesn't go into, say, what the other books in the series were, but presumably there was – a world atlas series um and this one's gone on to have a life of its own um from that beginning where it had uh it was inspired by this other book um and presumably they wanted to be able to have for you know raconteurs or bon vivants they wanted to have some sort of a uh a part of their bookshelf dedicated to the world atlas of the finest things in the world <laughs> i wonder what um, else there what else could it have been what, what else, exactly, what else requires know. an atlas I don't know, but uh, <laughs> interesting. But for me, what makes the term Atlas appropriate is that this was like the Google Maps of its time. Um, now, if I want to find out about a course, I'll just go on Google Maps and that'll be my first port of call. I'll have a look, I'll zoom in and I'll I'll look around and find out a bit of information about it. Um, and this is what we had at the time in, in lieu of Google Maps is these diagrams these beautiful illustrations and in many ways they're far superior to google maps um but looked at in combination with google maps they're they're, they're a fascinating way to get a complete picture of a course you've got these these snapshots in time um i encourage you to look at the jockey club oh, that's an interesting one um the diagram in this book is beautiful it's obviously a, a storied course um it's got a great history and great lineage, but uh, look at it on Google Maps now, and it it's barely recognisable as a golf course. Um, so that that you can't really even see the holes. And no no course that I've looked at through here, and as I was rereading it, I looked at a lot of the courses on Google Maps. No course better illustrates why these diagrams are far superior to Google Maps, um, and uh, for me that. That makes it sort of worthy of this title of Atlas. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, I didn't really answer your question about what would I redo, but I'd probably the mix of courses would be the thing that I'd redo. Right. I'd leave in I'd leave in the things that made the cut because there's so much effort being made to put them in there. But I, I think I'd be less concerned with the page count. It looks like they're obsessed with having it be a certain size book. I think I'd be a little less obsessed with that, let that blow out quite considerably and uh, pour that passion that they had for these courses that they featured into some other courses that are equally deserving. Um, but you're always going to miss out on some things. There's always – that's the nature of lists, isn't it? People are going to be disappointed with what you include. So, and And these are, as we go through time, as we've said before, th- these are a way to weigh – what was valued at that period of time, whether it was 76 or 83 or in the nineties, you know, we talked about how Valderrama in the K club, um, and courses like that, the Belfry made their way in, um, Lock champions, 
um, Champions Club in in uh, Houston was on there for a yeah, while. That was bizarre, wasn't it? I yeah, I was there. stunned to see that included. I played both of the courses there, and I had a beautiful lunch with Jackie Burke while I was there. But I would not think of that as one of the top fifty golf courses I've played. Right, and it it just shows you where they were at the time, and and then those courses dropped off, and and new ones came on, and those drop off. There's obviously the core of great historic old courses the 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 open rota is going to stay on um then it's just fascinating to see what percolates up and then the bubble pops and it and it fades away i will say in the in the modern edition there were some notable additions that had uh evaded publication uh strangely somehow before but it also shows shows how our understanding of golf maybe evolves or what we value prestwick finally comes on in 2008 north barrick I don't believe makes an appearance until 2008. No. Cruden Bay comes on. Um, Morfontaine comes on. Fisher's Island, uh, Bethpage, Maidstone, uh, Chicago Golf Club. And then some, some newer courses, uh, American courses, come on in Whistling Straits. Uh, uh, Prairie Dunes uh, finally makes it on. <laughs> Sandhills makes it on, but so does Shadow Creek. Pacific Dunes, um, Riviera finally makes it on in 2008. So a lot of what the the latest edition is is sort of a corrective, and a lot of those strange uh, European, Spanish, Italian courses. Italy's a fascinating one. Look at the from yeah. from the early version to the modern version, just to see that no, it never stays the same. There's not apparently one. <laughs> course i, I, I can that, only assume they're not great stewards of golf in italy that you know they don't look after what they've got or something because they tear it all down and, <laughs> and it's a whole yeah or they're they just reinvent the, the editors the are just trying so hard to get an italian course in and nothing is nothing <laughs> sticking <laughs> yeah but the, but the 2000 the last thing i'll say about the, the the 2008 is that for for all of the and again i don't know who's who called the shots but they did with this edition exactly what they would blast the hell out of architects doing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and that is going in and just renovating over the top of what was existing and what was valuable and what was already majestic, and they just put their own version of it. They just wiped <laughs> Pat Ward Thomas and Charles Price and Peter Thompson off the off the map and, and put their own thing on, which is really ironic for a, a book about golf course architecture. And the last note is on the, the additions. I did notice that Tom Doak was on the, on the editorial staff, and there are three Tom Doak courses uh, that made the new edition and only one core Crenshaw. Uh, I, I'm not sure what quite to make of that. <laughs> I think you're casting aspersions there, Derek. <laughs> I think the, so. Um, <laughs> but uh, on that, the only book, I guess, that would compare, uh, again, if to answer the question, how would you rewrite this? Certainly, Doak's confidential guides are one way that you could rewrite this. And uh, I, I think the, the breadth of coverage that those books give courses in in each of the regions is really to be admired um and probably the only way you can do it is to um to go uh, a little bit less intense like you're obviously not going to create a course diagram for every course and the confidential guide you'd be at it for a you know a century but um uh that approach i think is probably the best way to get a comprehensive opinionated coverage of a large number of golf courses and, and give sort of fair fair coverage to to a lot of them, albeit very opinionated coverage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's 
Yeah, I don't know if, if there's something beautiful to me about just the straightforward storytelling that the early editions have without the without the judgment. There's it's there's such a lack of judgment about these golf courses. They're just taken as they are. They're they they the writers emphasize them being part of their native landscapes. They talk about the evolution and some of the great moments and it's just it's a very old way to think about golf when when we are so dialed into rankings and ratings and opinions and hot takes. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just time for that. Maybe we just outgrown that old world style of, of golf writing. Well, that's right. It sets the context for that with the essays, doesn't it? Where it says golf, you know, started in the links. The demand for golf grew. It grew to the point where you wanted it closer to where people were living inland. Great ground was discovered for golf in sort of the heathland areas and other places where there was like sandy soil and ideal conditions for building courses. And then we went into an era where we could we could build whatever we wanted wherever we wanted to. And uh, it, it really covers that evolution off very nicely in the essays at the start and then, you know, gives examples of each throughout the book. Stephen, do you have any final thoughts, any, anything in summation, overall large takeaways from the book? Just the very best book about golf courses that I've read, with the exception of Golf Courses of the British Isles and also The Confidential Guide that Derek mentioned earlier. I think those three stand alone among course compilation books that I've had the opportunity to read. I thought it was a wonderful book, and I'd recommend it to every person. To me, if you, I don't know that you can understand golf course architecture and the history of design and even the history of golf without reading the World Atlas of Golf. And specifically, go and find one of the early editions, the the 83 and the 76 uh, editions in particular, that have that beautiful front section that Adrian was just talking about going through the times and, and the evolution. And, and a lot of that, you know, I, I thought I knew all that I was familiar with it. Nothing was shocking, but to see it laid out and to see it all connected and to see it written, read it so beautifully illustrated and, and written about really added something to, to what I thought I already knew. And the photographs, as Adrian mentioned in this book, are also valuable. These are vintage photographs taken. Most of them are taking, taken in the 1970s, and it gives you a portal into what golf looked like at that time. It's very hard to imagine now because most of these golf courses have been renovated or retouched. And even though the architects often are attempting to, to put them back into an original state or the, or the way they might have looked, you can't get that age or that, that settling or that development or that particular definition that, would, that these golf courses uh, carried with them at this particular period in time. At the beginning of the book, there's a, a wonderful, incredible picture of one of the most photographed holes in the world at the seventh at pebble beach the little par three and just to see the way the bunkers are shaped and the size of the green and the color of the sand and the color of the grass it's it's breathtaking it's it's not anything what it looks like now and it's not what it looked like in in 1930 with uh chandler egan's redevelopment and imitation dunes it's it's just of a time and place so I would encourage everybody to, to hunt down a copy of the, uh, the one of the original editions uh, because I don't think the combination of the writing and the illustrations and the reviews and the front of the book and the photographs, I don't think you can really understand how golf has developed through time and up to this point without at least giving this book a look. Adrian, final thoughts? Uh, yeah, this was a very influential book for me. Um, it was a real joy to revisit it 
for this podcast, and it's something I'll I'll do more often. I think is pick it up and open it anywhere and read a little bit and then put it down. I think it's it's a wonderful book for that. The edition that I've got uh, from the eighties is is one of the first things I would grab if the house was on fire. Hmm. So that's uh, that's that's what I think of it, and that's what this particular book means to me. I agree wholeheartedly. It was a pleasure spending the last bit of time talking about the World Atlas of Golf with you, Stephen, and with you, Adrian. Thank you so much. It was nice to be a part of the uh, resurrection, the renovation of the, the book club of the old IC Golf Podcast and now the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod will be back, hopefully, for the next episode of the Good Good Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this. I hope you, uh, if, if nothing else, this podcast reignites your passion and maybe pulling down your old copy of the World Atlas of Golf. Looking at uh, and, and it's worth it to go look at the new 2008 edition, too. If nothing else, it'll give you a heightened appreciation of the old version. And maybe you'll disagree and think it's it's uh, has value on its own. It does have value, but maybe you'll think more of it than I do. So uh, that'll wrap it up for this edition of the Book Club and the Good Good Podcast. And we'll be back, or Rod and Adrian and, uh, and another guest will be back with you soon. So thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.